everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. everybody. Welcome to my very first episode of my very first podcast, History and Mystery. I am so excited and a little nervous to be here. Before I get started, I would like to say welcome to anyone kind enough to give my new show a listen. I'm new to making podcasts, but I am definitely not new to being a huge history and paranormal nerd. My name is Ariel, and I wanted to start a podcast that would cover history and hauntings and, of course, the mysterious things that go bump in the night. I have been collecting all this random knowledge of historical places for years, and I've never had anyone to tell them to. So, being the big nerd that I am, I decided what a better way to tell the world of my weird findings than a podcast. Because this is my first episode, I don't want to box myself in too much. But I am going to give a quick rundown of what to expect from my podcast and what I hope I'll continue to keep doing. I will start off the show with a few announcements and then I will go into my Monster of the Week segment. And then from there, I will go into my main location of the um, historical location I'm going to cover. And then I'll round it all off with the hauntings at the end. And then hopefully I'll be able to finish off each of my podcasts eventually with uh, reading some reviews. And um, I'm not into the Patreon pages or anything just yet. So I'll keep you posted on all that. I just want to see how this goes first. So I'm going to play that part by ear. Last but not least, I wanted to let everyone know that I have set up an email account for this podcast. So if you have any suggestions for a haunted location that you'd love for me to cover or if you have ever experienced anything paranormal yourself because I would love to do a listener story um, segment once a month at least and if you have any suggestions for my monster of the week I have an email address that you can email me at that email address is historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com again that's history and mystery no spaces dot 13 at gmail.com. I really hope to hear from you guys. And also, of course, because especially since I am new to podcasting, I would love for you to write any reviews, suggestions in the below comment section. And also, I know on Himalayan podcast, you can give this a big thumbs up. That would be fantastic. And please uh, subscribe. And I'm going to be having a lot more interesting things coming. So without further ado, let's get this episode started.
it's time for Monster of the Week. The Monster of the Week I chose today came from a book that I got from my local bookstore called Chasing American Monsters by Jason Offit. I hope I said his name right. Anyway, it's a really good book and I highly recommend everybody check it out. The monster I found most fascinating was called The Black Dog of Hanging Hills. The Black Dog of Hanging Hills, or as it is also known as the Black Dog of West Peak, is described as a specter in the shape of a black dog. The black dog is the size of a hound and is seen and has been seen for hundreds of years in the mountains near Marauden in southern Connecticut. The land is now a national on the National Parks Registry of Historic Places, also known as Herbert Park. The forest is covered in rocky cliffs and beautiful trees and foliage. The first report of seeing the dog from someone that was from out of the area was in the 1990s by a geologist named W.H.C. Pincun. He wrote in his journal that a black dog that never made a sound followed him into the forest and everywhere he went all day long. When he was about to leave, the dog vanished without a trace. After his first encounter, he found that the locals already knew all about the black dog, and the locals' belief is that if you see the dog one time, you will have joy. See the specter again, and you will have sorrow, or it is a type of warning. If you see the dog the third time, it means death. Apparently, the legend holds true for the geologist because he had seen the dog two times, and on his third time of seeing the dog in the forest, he fell to his death off of one of the many cliffs in the area. So the next time you're out hiking in Herbert Park, you might want to keep an eye out for a black dog and also keep track of how many times you see it. You never know. The next time you see the black dog of Hanging Hills, it just might be your last. Today I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite locations to visit, the Mount Vernon Estate. Mount Vernon Estates is where one of the United States founding fathers, George Washington, grew up. His family's plantation stretched over 8,000 acres in its prime. After the Revolutionary War, he came back and lived with his wife Martha. The Estates is now a historical museum that hosts tours daily and is open 365 days a year. I have been lucky enough to go to Mount Vernon two times in my life and would love to go back. Going to see this in person is really the best way to understand just how massive this old plantation really was. Today, its beauty stretches over 500 acres and looks like it has been literally frozen in time. Join me as we go back in time to the beginning to find out just who still might be hanging around other than the artifacts and the buildings that they left behind. Britain had a successful establishment of a settlement at Jamestown in 1607, the tobacco trade between Great Britain and the colonies of Virginia was flourishing. The Washington family had suffered hardships in the wake of the English Civil War, leading George Washington's great-grandfather John Washington to explore new ways to better his social economic standing. He decided to join what is known as the Seahorse of London, which was a small trading ship selling supplies and other goods in exchange for tobacco along the Potomac River. When he arrived in Virginia in 1957, he decided to stay rather than return to London. He fell in love and married Anne Poe in 1658. Then they decided to settle in Westmoreland County 
in an area between Rappanoak and the Potomac River, which is now known as the Northern Neck. They decided to begin life as tobacco farmers. In 1674, John Washington and a man named Nicholas Spencer were awarded a 5,000-acre land grant from Lord Thomas Coupler on the Potomac River. and was then divided between Washington and Spencer, but the entirety of the land grant would one day become George Washington's entire Mount Vernon estate. John Washington owned the land from 1674 to 1677. I'm just going to break in here and say I think it is incredible that the Washington family was able to keep this property in their family for so long, especially since it was pretty much just a plantation without a house for so long. I just think it's incredible. These days, people can't even seem to hold onto a cell phone for more than a couple of weeks, let alone someone else's great-great-grandfather's property line. Okay, moving on. Next up was Lawrence Washington. He owned the property from 1677 to 1698. He was the son of John Washington and George Washington's grandfather. Also, what I found fascinating about this land is it was kind of given back and forth between the Spencer family and the Washington family because in night or I'm sorry, 1990 in. 1690, the original land grant by Lord Coupler was divided equally between the Washington and the Spencer families, and then they kind of just kept passing the border back and forth for a long time, which is kind of weird. But eventually, the border by Little Huntington Creek and the Spencer's family, uh, it would all become the core of George Washington's five farms that was his estates slash plantation. So after that, Lawrence Washington gifted the property to his daughter, Mildred Washington, and she owned the property from 1698 to 1726 until she finally agreed, her and her husband Roger actually agreed to sell the estates to her brother, Augustine Washington, which was George Washington's father. Now, he owned the plantation area from 1726 to 1743. Although he purchased Little Huntington Creek Plantation from his sister, he didn't really live there um, very often until he finally decided to build the house in 1734. When he built it, it was a single, just a one and a one half story uh, tall house. It was pretty simple. George Washington ended up adding all of the rooms and add-ons to it to make it the mansion that we all know today. When Augustine built the house in 1734, he moved his family to the plantation to live in the house, but that didn't last very long. They ended up moving uh, to what was known as Ferry Farms near Fredericksburg um, for the rest of George Washington's uh, upbringing. He lived there, but he still spent time at the property during the summers because his uh, eldest half-brother was actually gifted the property in 1743 after he got married. So he owned that property and the house that was there built from 1743 to 1752. Now, after George and Lawrence lost their father, they spent a great deal of time together as young adults on the plantation property, um, I think probably consoling each other and hanging out. His brother was 14 years older than him, though, so that's quite an age gap for sure. After Lawrence owned the property, he gave it to Sarah Washington, um, after Lawrence passed away from tuberculosis in 1752, he left it to Sarah, who was his only living child, and she owned it from 1752 to 1754. And they had it in the will that if Sarah died without any offspring um, to the property, uh, that it would go to Lawrence's wife, Anne Fairfax Washington. 
Sadly, Sarah passed away only two years later. So Anne Fairfax Washington, um, she inherited the property and she owned it from 1754 to 1761. But she already had remarried, so she wasn't living there anymore. So she decided to actually start leasing the property to George Washington. And then by the time she passed away, it was officially George Washington's ownership of the estates and the mansion. Well, the house that he turned into a mansion. And the years he owned it was from... 1761 to 1799. He began living there in 1734 and he greatly expanded both the mansion and his land holdings. He bought up a lot of the property surrounding the already existing property lines and finally um, he called it Mount Vernon, which is what we know today. So sadly for George, he never really got to spend as much time as he wanted to spend there because the Revolutionary War started and he had to go, you know, fight for the freedom that he believed he was fighting for at the time. After they won the war, he became our president. So he had to stay um, in Congress, basically, and work in um, Washington, in not Washington, D.C. at the time. It was New York at that time. So it kept him far away from his plantation. And finally, by the time he was done, he just wanted to go home. Um, and uh, he finally, after his presidency, he left, He went back home, but then he passed away in uh, December 14th, 1799. After George's death, it was passed down to many different Washington family members. So obviously his wife, Martha, inherited the property from 1799 to 1802, and she ran the plantation pretty much all by herself. And then it was given to Bushrod Washington. He owned it from 1802 to 1829. And then it was given to John Augustine Washington II from 1829 to 1832. And then it was given to Jane, Jane Charlotte Blackburn Washington. And she owned it from 1832 to 1850. And the last Washington to own the property was John Augustine Washington III. Now, he owned this from 1850 to 1858. So, by the time that uh, Washington III owned it, the property was pretty much in disrepair. Tobacco wasn't really a popular option anymore at this time. And uh, it was pretty much falling apart. Um, he tried to... Um, increase his earnings by making it actually a um, a tourist attraction. Even back then, he tried to get people to come from Washington, D.C. He tried to capitalize on the iconic um, status. and But honestly, he was letting the mansion fall apart. It was, um, it was pretty much in disrepair. And uh, he tried to sell it to the government as a historical um, uh artifact basically but the government didn't want it and then finally um in 1858 um the mount vernon ladies association stepped in and took over the ownership of the property so basically in 1853 louisa cunningham um she saw the mansion and it's horrifyingly dilapidated state from a boat out on the potomac river and uh, she turned to her daughter, actually, and was like, that's painful to see. It's disgusting to American history. Um, if the men aren't going to, basically what she said is, if the men aren't going to step up and repair it, um, then us women will do it. 
And uh, she founded the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, who rallied women from around the country to raise funds necessary to buy the uh, Mount Vernon property from the Washington family. And so in 1858, um, John uh, Augustine Washington III um, basically sold the property to the uh, Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and they own it to this day. Now, before I move on to the hauntings, I do want to say that um, this was a working plantation at one time. So, yes, there were enslaved people on this land, and George Washington did own slaves, as sad and almost sickening as that is to say. Um, so, he basically owned uh, 123 enslaved people on his uh, farms, they did everything from uh, cooking to cleaning to uh, farming. Um, a lot of them did trades back then, like making things like leather and buckets and all kinds of things that were needed for the tobacco. But over time, um, it, it seems like because George Washington was brought up in that world, you know, after the, after the Revolutionary War, he came back and um, his... For whatever reason, his um, thoughts on slavery seem to have changed, though he never said it publicly and he didn't do any legislation at the time. Um, he did, however, in his will, uh, when he passed away, he, in, he freed all of his 123 slaves. Um, and he decided, I guess, that he just didn't want anyone there anymore to be under his or his wife's control. At just 11 years old, George Washington was actually inherited 10 enslaved people. Think about that, an 11-year-old given 10 enslaved people to him by his father. That just blows my mind. Um, and uh, at the height of the Mount Vernon, actually, they owned more than 500 slaves. So they had quarters for them and whole sections of farming just for the slave uh, people. There's actually a really cool picture on Mount Vernon, uh, the website, that gives you an idea of Mount Vernon in 1799, and it has the enslaved people as blue. It's like a bunch of stick figures lined up in a pattern, and it's all the enslaved people is blue, and then there's the, um, there's red little stick figures for, like, the, um, white, uh, indentured servants, basically, and then there's the George Washington family. There's only... One, two, three, four. There's only five of the George Washington family. And it's just covered with people that they technically didn't have to pay and owned. Um, so that's really um, sad. But for whatever reason, he by the end of his life, um, he decided to free the 123 enslaved people that he owned in his will. There has been so many ghost sightings at Mount Vernon itself that they even have a special page dedicated to the hauntings. All you have to do is go to their website and there's the ghost stories tab right there. It's incredible. I was really surprised. I thought I was going to have to do a lot more research than that. No, they, unlike some historical sites, embrace the ghost stories. Cold spots have been reported in and outside of the mansion along with phantom smells. 
The main ghost seen inside the house is, of course, George Washington himself. Apparently, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association even had a run-in with him. When they first started rebuilding the mansion after they purchased the place, they had nowhere to sleep because they were doing such a big job on the restoration project themselves that they decided to sleep inside the mansion itself. There were two ladies that were sleeping on George Washington's personal four-poster bed in which he passed away in and in this historic chamber they said that in the middle of the night they woke up with the feeling of someone standing over them the following account was reported in the new york newspaper in 1890 of course the most interesting of all bedrooms is the one that belongs to the immortal george and in which he died in the original four-poster bed whereon george washington spent his last moment this historic chamber is haunted of that there seems to be little doubt Many people within recent years have slept in it, and they declare that they were awed by a viewless presence of the nation's first president. They deny wholeheartedly that this was based on imagination. Few of these temporary occupants have ever been able to get any sleep. Miss William Bale and a friend of hers spent the night at Mount Vernon. At their own request, they were permitted to occupy Washington's bedroom. In the middle of the night, they were awakened by a spurting noise of their candle. They had lighted one surreptitiously and were burning it in the middle of a basin of water. Fancy they saw a spook, it went out with the noise, and they began to feel alarms. Miss Bale said to her friend, Are you on the side of the bed where Washington died? The other replied, No, I'm not. He died on your side. Finally, they decided that the question was doubtful enough and there would get no more sleep for them that night. They got up quickly and dressed themselves and they sat around until morning, scared by every squeak of the window, and at one moment they were both sure they heard Washington's sword clanking distantly in a corner. Keep in mind, the last report was in the 1890s, so ghosts have been seen here for quite some time. The next spirit that is known to be seen occasionally is known as the Angry Gentleman. In the 1980s, there was an interpreter who was with a school um, field trip, and she thought she heard someone in a room behind her doing the tour. So her thinking, you know, somebody went underneath the rope, maybe a kid, maybe a student, um, to go touch some artifacts. She went in there to scold him and shoo them away. And then uh, suddenly she saw an older gentleman sitting there that was sporting a large mustache and he was dressed in the late 19th to early 20th century clothing and with the sleeves rolled up. And when he saw he had her attention, he shouted at her. Apparently he said, what the hell is going on here? In a reference to the noise of the school group. And the interpreter told him that she was trying to quiet them down and when she turned around, the man had disappeared. She later saw a portrait of the gentleman in question. Turns out it was Colonel Harrison Howell Dodge, who was the Mount Vernon's director for about 50 years until his death in the late 1930s. Interpreters being at the mansion seem to have running themes here with ghosts because another interpreter in the 1980s again was um, in what is known as the little parlor and she felt something brush across her legs and she looked down and all she could see was the bottom half torso of a young girl in a uh, 18th century dress running across the central passage by the time she turned around to see if anyone had seen what she saw it was gone apparently george washington puts away his horse at night 
they have some alarm systems in the old barn and in the bedchambers in the mansion. So apparently an alarm goes off frequently inside the stable. And then at about the time it would take to unsaddle and put away a horse and make it comfortable, then the alarm goes off in Washington's bedchamber. And the guards are always dispatched to check out the place. And of course, there's nothing there. So the explanation that everyone gives is it's just the general coming home, made his horse comfortable, and then he goes to sleep, basically in his room. This one's a bit odd. Um, apparently another interpreter in the 1980s was standing at the base of the stairs when she saw a figure of an unidentified woman dressed in 18th century clothing uh, coming down the stairs and she was carrying a large punch bowl apparently filled with a flower arrangement and upon reaching the bottom of the stairs the apparition just vanished in front of her eyes. Thank you guys all so much for listening to my very first podcast. I hope you learned some things and I hope it was entertaining. I really didn't do justice to how amazing this uh, plantation really is. They do reenactments. They do. They have something on the calendar every weekend. They, um, they're open 365 days a year, like I said. Um, they're always open for contributions because they are a nonprofit. If you go to mountvernon.org, org. Um, you can find out all the information. I got a lot of this information from their website. Uh, so that was extremely helpful. They do a fantastic job of the historical accuracy. If you go, um, there's also places to eat. They have a restaurant now. Um, it's just, it's a lot of fun and there's a harvest festival coming up in October. I found on the calendar, but they have something every weekend. Like I said, I hope that you will hit that subscribe button because I will try to make a podcast at least once a week, if not every other week. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what my next topic is going to be, but I'm about to figure that out as soon as I get this posted. So thank you guys so much again, and I hope to see you guys back here next. I hope you're having a great day or great evening whenever you're listening to this podcast. See you later.